Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, good evening. We are going to get started here. Uh, now I've been told uh, by my coaching clinic over here to my left that on occasion, if I get going quickly and acting like me, some of you can't hear or it's, it is a little bit muffled in here or echoey, and that's because the chairs are moved and it's cement floors and all of that. It's kind of designed to have the cushion of the chairs absorb a lot of the bounce. Well, there's no bounce off the top of my bald head to the back. So if I go too fast and there's a blank, just raise your hand. It won't distract me at all. I'm easily distracted, but that won't harm me. So just back, put your hand up and say, I missed that, and I'll back up and and uh, fill in the blanks and keep you up to speed. And I'll try to talk a little bit slower um, and uh, cover the material so you can hear. Uh, And I'm encouraged. Uh, I thought I made Dave Heflin mad. He disappeared to the mountains, but he returned. So I'm really glad that I'm seeing some of you in and out during the week, and uh, I'm just glad to have you back. Uh, Please know that all of this is available on podcast. Uh, If you ever miss a week and you can't sleep and you need good insomnia medicine, just grab a lesson. You'll be out in 10 minutes, I promise. Okay? Let me pray tonight, then we're going to review, and we're going to quiz you and see how much you remember of all the things we've learned. All right? You're panicked, so let's pray. God, we thank you for this uh, safe place to be. Thank you for... uh, Uh, on a beautiful fall night, that we can come in here and end our day by thinking about you and being challenged, I hope, how we can grow in maturity and how you want to develop us. God, I'm grateful that you don't ask us to do anything out of obligation. You simply ask us to do what you ask us to do out of love. And uh, for that and this opportunity to share what we're learning and to get to know each other better in the most deepest of ways is a privilege, and we thank you for it. Thank you for Jesus. Uh, who gave us the church, and for the church that gives us hope, and for that hope that allows each one of us to live our lives well. Uh, And we love you, and uh, we just pray this as we begin tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here's your quiz. What's a disciple? Pardon? A learner who imitates. Yes, he's relieved. He doesn't have to answer a question the rest of the night. He's good. He can move on. All right. Uh, How does God measure a life? Taking the writings of Paul to the church, what are the three things we're fairly convinced of? I'm going to say I'm convinced of it. I'm going to ask you to be fairly convinced of it until the semester is over. What are the three things that Paul looks for in the lives of people to demonstrate that they're getting this thing called faith? Three things. I just gave you a clue. Faith, hope, and love. And they're all demonstrated equally. And we know this because if they're not doing well in one of these areas, what did Paul do? He wrote them a letter. He wrote to the group of Christians and saying, hey, you're fantastic in faith, but you've lost your hope. What church, do you remember particularly, what church struggled with the concept of hope which caused Paul to write the first letter to them? The church of Thessalonica. How do we know that? Because he's telling them the resurrection didn't happen. You didn't get left behind. When Jesus comes back, you'll know. Would that steal your hope? If Jesus came back and all Christians went to heaven and you didn't? Okay? And that's partially what we talked about. You might remember what we talked about is that's a misconception of heaven. As some distant galaxy where Luke Skywalker's at now. It's actually, where is heaven? Wherever God is. Wherever the presence of God is, that is heaven. That's why we can pray such thing as... Let it be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Let your will, the reign, the effectual reign of God, let it be where it is. 
So, let's, how did we measure faith? There's three kinds of faith found in Scripture. Do you remember what they are? I'm sorry, the word faith is used three different ways. First is? A body of truth. So, sometimes Paul refers to faith as, a, as the doctrines, we call them. The doctrines of the church. Who is Jesus? Who is God? Why are we here? What's our purpose? These non-negotiables that God told us are truths, we hold on to those. What's the other kind of thing we have that we call faith? Salvation. Saved by faith, it's connected to that. And then what's the one we're actually talking about in this class? A growing experience. A growing experience with what? With truth, with being saved, and with God. Okay, so when we talk about faith here, what Paul's measuring in each one of us is how are we growing in this experience of walking with God? And then we talked about how do you measure hope? And so this is more convoluted, and this is the one I think I lost half the class where you're looking at me like, not another story. Okay, so let me rebuild it. Hope is, hope is real when it's based on what? Pardon? Okay, when it has experiential reality to it, but it's got to be based, when you hope in something, you're hoping in that thing. So what we learned is the hope that Paul calls for is not a hope based on your ability. It's not a based on your intellect. It's not a based on anything you bring. It's based on what? Jesus. It's based on his effective faithfulness. Can he keep every promise? Uh, you hear me say this a lot on Sundays if you pay attention. I love Dr. Timothy Keller's definition of why we struggle with God. Keller says we struggle with God because we don't think he's good or we don't think he's wise. One of those two. In other words, he doesn't know what he's talking about or he can't be trusted to do the right thing for us. Whenever we have those moments of doubt and the tempter tempts us to think that, right? Go back to Genesis chapter 3. What are the two basic offers that that's the, the serpent said to Adam and Eve? Did he really mean it? Did he tell you the truth? And will he really? He won't really punish you. He's not, he's not really... That's not really what he's after. Is he good and is he wise? Our hope... Our faith is an experience with Jesus. Our hope is based on Jesus being able to keep his word and do exactly what he promises to do. Now, hopefully at this point, hopefully, huh, pun intended, hopefully at this point you're looking at this going, this isn't that hard. Is, is faith really just this experience of trusting Jesus and learning about him as I trust him? And is hope really based on the fact, can he keep every promise he's ever made? And the answer is, it's not easy, but it's not complicated. Living by faith and living by hope requires us to abandon ourselves. And if you want to get spiritually mature, you're going to have to let somebody else coach you beyond your own comfort. So if you've ever been coached really hard by a coach, and maybe it's a mentor, maybe it's someone who trained you. Um, my, one of my best friends in Michigan was a guy named Randy Keeler. And Randy was an amazing guy, and one time we were, were working, he actually asked me to, to help him work on a farm one day, and he was doing an electric fence. And he comes over and he goes, let me show you something. Don't touch this. And it was at a junction box and there was this one coil. And I'm so technical. There was this coil and a bunch of barbed wire and everything. He said, don't ever touch that. And I said, why? And he goes, it will blow you off your feet. And of course, being a guy, fellas, what was my first thought? Not me. I can stand it. You know, just stupid. And he goes, no, honestly, it'll send you back 10 feet. And I said, how do you know? Guys, how did he know? Because he touched it. And I said, why did you touch it? And he said, because my dad said, go over and touch it. And his dad was training him as an apprentice. And then Randy said he got blown about 10 feet. He still doesn't have on his left hand pointer finger, he has no feeling. He got that big of a shock. 
and he got blown back and he landed on his butt and he said he was in the dirt and his two older brothers were laughing and his dad was laughing and he looked at his dad and he goes, now you'll never do that again. <laughs> and, and Randy said, why in the world? His dad's a funny guy too. He said, why in the world did you let me touch it? And he goes, because your other two brothers never believed me and did it on their own. I figured we'll just get it over with. <laughs> All right. So if you've ever been coached like that, you ought to thank God for Jesus because he didn't coach us like that. What he simply said is, I love you enough to tell you my words are going to matter, and if you don't follow my words, there are going to be difficulties. And all, I see people shaking their heads, which means we know, we touched that after we were told not to, ended up on our butts and wondered, how did that happen? Because we didn't believe God is wise, or we didn't believe that God was good. Then we talked about how do we measure love, and all I want to do with that tonight is remind you that we talk about faith, hope, and love. Love is not just, are you sweet, are you kind, and are you affectionate? Love is, has Jesus changed your heart toward all people? I'll give you a little bit of a teaser. One of the greatest texts in the entire world is Luke 15. And we're going to talk about it this weekend if you come to church. Because in Luke 15 is the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. And it's all about God's love. Because Jesus asked, they questioned whether Jesus knew what he was doing by hanging out with people like us. And Jesus answers by telling three powerful stories. And there's a twist at the end that's pretty powerful. So there's your teaser. And we'll talk about love on Sunday, if you come. And then last week we talked about measuring community by the things we unify around. So if you weren't here, I just want, I'm not going to reteach them. I just want to highlight them because it gives me a running start into where we're going today. I'm going to tell you that tonight's lesson is going to require some table talk at the end. I promise I'll finish with enough time. It'll take about five minutes. But when I tell you what I'm going to tell you tonight from the scriptures, I want you to self-assess. All I'm going to ask you to do is when we give the list of things that, we're, that we do as active participants in community, I want you to say... I think those come easy to me, and I I think these two come easy to me, and I think these two are more difficult for me. Can we all do that? You don't have to do anything more. You don't have to say what your W-2 is. You don't say what your worst sin ever was, where, where your tattoo is. You don't have to answer any of that. I want you to listen tonight and ask yourself, I think those two come easier to me, and I think these two challenge me in a way that makes me uncomfortable. All right? So, how do we practice our unity? We have a learning experience with the Word of God. Which means each one of us individually has to have some sacred space in the Word. Allowing the Word to shape us, to challenge us. We have to have a relational experience with one another. In other words, we can't do this alone. Christianity is not a solo project. It is a group effort. Uh, I was once required because of the major that I was teaching in at the college level, I had to do a small groups class. And I tell you what, I'd rather have you beat me with a stick than put me in a small group project in school. Because if you've ever been in one, everybody gets graded equally, but one person does all the work and three other people take the credit. And it drove me crazy. Because I was like, I just want to get my stuff done so I can have fun with my life. And all these other people are like, we need to just talk about our strategy. Strategy, my eye. Tell me what to do and let's get it done. <laughs> then I had to teach that course. I just told the students, man, I hate this. But you learn so much more in community than you do alone. What was fun for me is I would always say when I was giving exams, I would say to this table, hey, you guys can study together. I don't care. You're all going to have to answer your own question, but study together. And then I learned in my second year of being a professor, I knew who studied together because they all got the answer wrong. So what had happened was, Bud comes in and goes, dude, I got second question. We're all like, what's the answer? We write it down. Well, Bud may not have known what he was talking about that particular day. So I'd see the four kids have the same answer, and I'm, well, they're smart enough not to have cheated that answer. And then I'd get them together, and I'd go, how did you guys come up with this answer? Bud told us that was it. 
And I'm like, okay, don't ever believe but again. <laughs> so you don't go blindly into a group, but what happens is people bring perspective into a group that's very helpful. And then we learned quickly, you have to have an experience with material possessions. Do you own it or does God own it? And what, is, what difference does that make? And we're going to talk in a couple weeks about that, how that plays out in the book of Acts. And I think I can convince you that what the early church did, we would do too. We would not hesitate to do what the early church did by making their possessions available to all people. Uh, a shared experience with praising God together. How do we worship and do we share our worship? And the mistake I made, I actually listen to what I say on Wednesdays and cringe every time I listen to my lessons. But one of the things I didn't do really well on top of a bunch of stuff last week is what I didn't do well is I didn't designate that worship, and I, I should have said this clearly, worship doesn't mean what takes place in a formal setting on a Sunday morning. Worship is when we get together and we simply say, what's the best part of your week and how's God been involved? Worship is spoken, it's texted, it's emailed, it's FaceTimed, however you connect with people. If we started talking about what God was doing in our lives, we might encourage a few people to join the race. But instead, if it comes Sunday, people just don't hear about it, they don't communicate it. And I think part of it is, I've got a friend in, in Mount Pleasant, his name's John. Every week, John will send me something good that happened at First Church, where Heather and I were at for 22 years. He'll say, a big thing happened this morning. And he said, I wanted to share it with you. And it's a kid that grew up in the church and made a decision or got married and baptized one of his kids. And John just sends me that on a Sunday night. Those are great things to get. We're worshiping together uh, 12 hours apart. A complete surrender to the our ex, uh, personal experience with the unsaved world. Are we sharing our light with people in the light or also with people in the darkness? And then the last thing we talked about, and this is where we're going to head tonight, the supernatural process. That this, what, I'm, what I'm talking about that Paul's looking for is not just how hard are you trying. It's are you creating space in your life for the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you in prayer and in Bible study. So when people come and say, I'm just not getting anything out of the Word. Are you just receiving the Word or are you trying to look for something to use it for? Instead of just receiving the power of the Word and the power of prayer with the power that the Spirit gives us. Jesus never said, go, go do it yourself. He said, let me help you. But you've got to be open to that. And that brings us tonight to this, how do we become active participants in community? And I want to just remind you that the passage in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, is the, the anchor text for what we're talking about in spiritual maturity. Just remember that we're taught by Paul that Jesus appointed leaders, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints for ministry. Every single one of us has the opportunity to serve in some capacity. I don't mean formally on a Sunday. I mean serve. To do what you get to do. To, to do what comes. Uh, in fact, he, he tells us that it only happens within the body of Christ that we become mature and grow in the knowledge of the Son until we reach the fullness of Jesus. That's why you'll see that the mission statement of our church is to equip God's people to find fullness in Jesus Christ. So something funny happened. There's a group activity we've been doing as a staff uh, on, on Mondays, and we're going to be offering it to the church later. We're trying to get some facilitators ready, but we've been going through this experience. And on Friday night, the particular group that I'm in on uh, Monday mornings worked with foster care that happened here Friday night. So they put us in Zoe's area down in children's ministry and turned loose all these little kids to come in there and to play. So I'm working with this little girl, and she, we're doing a puzzle together. And she sits down at the table, and she, just, she was awesome. She looks at me, she goes, you ever done a puzzle? And I'm like, not since I was four. And she goes, I'm really good. 
And I go, then I want to work with you. And she goes, but I don't need your help. I go, I know, but would you teach me how to do a puzzle? And she and I did a puzzle of the minions from uh, Despicable Me. So we were putting this puzzle together, and she's telling me how dumb I was and how that doesn't go there, and I'm playing along <laughs> innocently, and, and we're doing all of this. And we came back, and it was I was sad because then they <clears throat> moved those kids to another room, and I'm like, I was having fun with her. And she went to arts and crafts, and I'm not allowed in there because of that one incident. So anyway, I couldn't go with her. I had to stay in my room with these other kids. We're having this moment. Well, we get in our, our group on Monday, and we're debriefing, and it was a beautiful moment. Someone in our group said this. Uh, Zoe, who leads our group, she said, how did you all feel about the service project Friday night? And one of the ladies in our group very sweetly said, uh, it didn't feel really like service. I didn't feel like I really sacrificed or anything. And the whole time I was going, that's what I loved about it. Hanging out with little kids and knowing their names and playing carpet ball. You ever played carpet ball? It's a long table. It's about two and a half feet wide and it's probably about nine feet long and it's covered in carpet on the inside. It's made of wood. And you roll billiard balls and you've got to knock off the other team's billiard balls into the, to the pocket and keep one of yours alive. And the person with the ball alive, well, I got this one little boy, and he lined up all of his, and he goes, you want to play? And I go, yeah, I love to play. And we're sitting there, and he throws his ball, and he knocks two or three of my eight in there, and I'm going, this kid's a player, nice. And I take my ball, and I roll it down to the end of the table, and that little turd reaches over the table and stops my white ball before it gets to his. <laughs> And without even blushing, he rolls down and takes out three more of mine. He wipes me out in three plays. I can't reach his. He just keeps snagging it. And he set it down. He looked at me and he goes, I'm really good, aren't I? I was like, Technically, you are. <laughs> the smartest kid I played all night. And so when we came back, I'm like, I have zero guilt that that wasn't painful. You hear what I'm saying? Service, you shouldn't have to feel exhausted when you serve. In fact, I want to tell you when you're spiritually gifted... It won't feel like work at all. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're like, I do that for free. Isn't it a joy that what God calls us to isn't work? And he says that God has given us all gifts. And when we get together, you don't have to argue about who's in charge because the person with the leadership gift has already taken over. And the person with the service gift is cleaning up their messes behind them. And the person with prophecy is saying, I think God really wants us to do this. And the, and the person who has the gift of faith is like, I absolutely believe that's what the Lord wants, and here's how he's going to... You see what I'm saying? When you read what Paul's saying is, none of us have to be in charge because he already is. All we have to do is just play our role. So if I can slip into sports metaphors for a quick second, a team with, with nine shortstops isn't a very good team. If everyone plays their role, you're a better team. So, with that said, here's core principles. Now, this is where you start paying attention to how it fits you. I want you to note, it is not egotistical to say, I think this comes easier to me than the others. So let's just talk about a, a couple of principles about how we do what we do. The first is we speak the truth in love. This is a core principle of growing in maturity. We speak the truth in love. And you can see it right there in Ephesians 4.15. Paul is challenging us. Now remember, we have been in Ephesians 4.11-13... through 13, and Paul talks about our gifting, and he talks about our unity, and he talks about how we're all working together. And if you really want to experience what God has in store for you, if you really want to grow deeper, start doing something that God has laid on your heart to do. Don't just watch. Church is really boring if all you do for 52 Sundays is come listen to me tell you what I've learned. It will not sustain you. You'll die of spiritual uh, malnutrition. 
You just will. You've got to experience it yourself and grow into it. But speaking the truth in love means that sometimes, and here's the balance, truth and grace have to be equally balanced. My mom went away. My dad said, uh, my dad was funny. He was going to work. And he looked at our brother Scott and I, and he goes, you know it would really be good right now? He didn't mean it. He just said, you know it would be really good right now? And he goes, and we're like, no. And he's like, I'd die for a chocolate chip cookie. And he got in his truck and went to work. Scott and I looked at each other and went, we can make chocolate chip cookies. So we went in and made the most beautiful chocolate chip cookies. They were really good. We got my mom's recipe book out. We read it. We did everything. We didn't fight. We were getting along. We ate more chocolate chips and we put in the cookies, but that's what you're supposed to do. That's the price of being the cook in my world. And we had all these cookies and my dad came home and he's like, wow. And we didn't make those cookies like you nice people make them. We made, if it's not as big as your hand, why bother? So we had these cookies as big as a paper plate and there were like nine of them for all the recipe. And my dad came in and he's like, that's amazing. He took a big chunk off of one when he was changing. He was taking his work clothes off, and he was walking up the stairs of their house. And he took a big bite. We saw his whole body lock. Like he took a bite, and he's like, and we're like, are they bad? And he goes, no, they're good. <laughs> and he goes upstairs, and my dad's got a big laugh, and we hear him chuckling all the way upstairs. And he comes downstairs. And he goes, have you tried them? And we said, no. We thought we didn't understand my mom's uh, shorthand. A tablespoon of salt is not a cup of salt, is it? So these fantastic cookies. So my dad's, he comes downstairs and he goes, um, throw them all away. And we're like, ah. Oh. And he goes, I go, none of them are good? And my dad goes, try it. And we're like, no, I trust you. So we threw all the cookies away. And my dad gave us a lesson about what all the symbols were. And he said, try again. And we did all of this. And my mom came home. And now in our world... My mom comes home and she's like, smells good in here. My dad said, yeah, the boys made chocolate chip cookies. She said, they did. We had all the supplies and we're like, yeah. My mom goes, how are they? My dad said, try one. And she tried one and we're thinking, he's going to let us slide. The old man's going to protect us. My mom took a bite and she goes, that's really good. My dad goes, you ought to have tasted the first one. And we're like, dude, you just buried us. And then he told her the whole story and everybody had a good laugh. And afterwards, he goes, did you want me to lie to her? And I remember that moment as a kid. And what was my answer? Yeah, I did. I absolutely wanted you to lie. Now, let me tell you what I've learned as a pastor. People constantly present cookies that look great and don't taste very good. And what do they want us to do? Lie. Now, should we tell them the truth? How do you balance the two? The truth with what? Love. And here's what we all know. Every single one of you knows how to tell the truth with love to someone you love that you know loves you in return, right? My wife will say the most beautifully hard things to me, and I would not let any of you say to me. Now, she lies to me every Sunday. Every Sunday for 32 years, I'll come home, because we always drive separate, and I'll come home, and she's like, that was a good sermon. And I know she lied. I like it. Because she's, she's weighing in love more than actual truth. But at the end of the day, she will tell me things like, you're not as funny as you think you are. That's really annoying, and everybody won't tell you the truth. And she tells me the truth very sweetly and kindly, but she balances it. Is it easy for you to tell the truth in love, or do you, dis- do you default to one or the other? Because it is not loving to lie to a person. It is not loving to tell someone that something that is harmful to them is not. And it's also harsh to be so true, and no compassion, no empathy, and no sympathy. So it's a tough balancing act. Second thing we learn that Paul tells us shows that we're growing in maturity is that we are joined and knit together. 
says, from the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working. The best definition I've heard of this, and Mike Smith's back in there in the corner, and uh, he's preached, and I preach, and he teaches for us, and probably the best definition that I've ever heard about this joint knit together is what Rick Warren once said. He said, I need you, and you need me, and that's gospel truth. I can't do what I do if you don't do what you do. If you don't contribute, I can't. One man can't block a football play. Eleven men got to put their helmets down and find the spot. Run the play, block the play, and make it work. Uh, Around the house, as kids, man, Saturday mornings was work day. There were four of us, my mom, my dad, all six of us. And you would go to the refrigerator. Before there were post-it notes, there was my dad handwritten notes on the refrigerator. And I knew on that Saturday I had these three things to do. And when those three things were done, and then we got older, my mom decided my dad wasn't in charge of cleaning the house. I don't know how he got that job. My mom came in, and my mom said something to us. She's like, Mark, you dust after you vacuum. And I'm like, no, no, no. You knock the dirt on the ground, you vacuum it up. She goes, it doesn't work that way. She goes, the vacuum's going to put dust in the air, so you come in and you dust afterwards. She saw me making my bed, and she's like, no, no, no. The tags go on the top of the sheet, not underneath. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. She goes, yeah. Do you want to get in bed and feel the tag between your toes? And instead I was going... I like that. <laughs> I hope my toes on it and play with it all night long. She's like, no, you're, you're a gerbil. You're easily distracted. She's like, this is how you make it. And she instructed us. And all of a sudden then, once she tra- retrained us after my dad, she would just blow the whistle. And if I would look up and say, I'm dusting. Okay, Scott's got a vacuum before I can dust so I can do my next project. And I realized this was it. I needed my brother to do his job. He needed me to do mine. At the end of the day, the family was done. We'd look at my parents and they're like, see ya, which meant out in the backyard playing ball the rest of the day came home for supper. How many of you grew up in that environment where you had chores and you were taught somewhere along the line that it didn't matter what anybody else did? As my dad always said, I have no plan on being fair. He said all the time, don't say to me it's unfair because I don't care. He's like, do what we ask you to do. Everyone does their part. Everyone takes their responsibility and it all works out fine. It's what Paul says about the church. Are you seeing what you can contribute or are you seeing what you can receive? Francis Chan's got a new book. Uh, I have not read it yet. It's in my queue for, to listen to when I walk in the mornings. But several staff people have brought this to me, and Adam Everett shared the illustration this morning. He said it's pretty amazing. He said, Chan says, the problem, now whenever I say the problem in the church, please don't be offended. I'll, I'll bring love into the truth. But he says, we have to be careful about the 32-year-old living in their parents' basement, crying out to their parents, I didn't like the food you cooked me. How would we respond to So I hope you're not 32 and living in your parents' basement, because there may be reasons for it that are justifiable. But the illustration's awkward, isn't it? Because if your 32-year-old child living in your house, eating your food for free, cried out they didn't like what you'd serve them for dinner, what would you respond with? Get over it. I like that. That sounds like the family I grew up in. Make your own, move out, buy your own, right? And yet in the church, what happens to a lot of us, not a lot of us, but some of us, or some of them, is that safer? Some of them. They, they sit in the back and say, well, I didn't feel it this morning. It must not have been good. I didn't like what you served me. Knitted and joined together means I need you and you need me. That just makes sense. All right, let's pick up the pace. Because what I want to get to now is something that Paul, I believe he begins in Romans 12. Maybe my chronology's off. But there's a section of Paul's writing, and this is what I really want us to focus on tonight, are these things called one another's. If we're honest with each other, the truth and love, and we all know we need each other to make this work and to grow. 
then what are some demonstrations of maturity that we need to aspire towards? Some you're already doing and you didn't even know that they were spiritual. It's just second nature to you. And others you're like, ugh, i got to work on that one. So let's walk through them. They're one another's. To my best recollection, if you take away the redundancies, I think there are 31 different one another commands in the writings of Paul. Peter may have one or two of those as well. Let's just say in the New Testament. There are 31 very direct imperatives. You must do this. Remember, imperatives are bossy words. Okay? An imperative is, didn't ask you if you wanted to. They're saying, do this. So let's walk through these, some of them tonight. We're not going to do 31. Our commitment to one another. Romans 12, 15, and 16. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Our commitment to one another. That's the very first one. Is it me versus uh, them, or is it we? And of course, Paul uses a body analogy. Let's remember some of the analogies for the church. What were some of them we've covered already? Anyone? Bueller? Anyone? Three analogies that Paul's equated? The walk? Pardon? Marriage? And a building? Now we're going to enter the fourth one, and probably the most common one, a body. He uses the body imagery over and over and over. So it talks about caring for the body. Can the elbow say we don't need the toes? Uh, I saw my dad slip down a, a set of stairs chasing us in good nature. He was trying to grab two of us, and when he, when he grabbed my foot, I pulled really hard, and he lost his balance and landed on the stairs, and he cracked three ribs. And he just played it off like a pro. And then I broke three ribs about two years into moving to Missouri, and if, I thought I was gonna, I'd rather die than sneezed. And I watched my old man work and do everything else with these broken ribs, and he was really tough. And then he broke his big toe one time, and you would have thought he was going to die on the spot. And we gave him the hardest time. We're like, dude, you went to work with broken ribs, broke your toe. And then I was talking to an orthopedic surgeon in Mount Pleasant. I was teasing about my dad and how he was acting. He goes, you have no idea. That toe controls your balance, controls your speed. And he just mentioned it. Now, some of you are shaking your heads, so I'm assuming you've had that experience of something like it. I had no idea. Every time I hear Paul's analogy about the body, I think of that. You can't say, I don't need my big toe. Lose it, and you lose some balance, and you lose a lot of things you didn't even know it did. Isn't it interesting that Paul uses that when he says, how dare we look down on another person as if they're insignificant and don't contribute anything? It may just be a pinky toe to you or a big toe, but it's got a purpose, and that purpose, even though it's not widely celebrated, or as he will say in another passage, I'm mixing my metaphors now, but when he talks about the body, he said there are unseemly parts, and there are those parts we're comfortable. In other words, we cover unseemly parts of our bodies with clothing, so not to be ashamed. And other parts, we, we don't, because we're not worried about that shame factor. He said, but all of them serve a part and need to be protected. The next one. We are members of one another. <clears throat> He continues in Romans 12, building this over and over. We are members of one another. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the other. I've always been fascinated. I don't know, I think it happens around Christmas time. Somebody always does the calculations of the 12 days of Christmas. You've seen it, right? Now with BuzzFeed, you hear it every year. If you bought 
you know, the dancing guys and the swans and the geese and the partridges. It would cost $12,800. Every year it goes up a little bit. But I'm more fascinated when someone calculates what the chemicals that make up the human body are worth. Have you ever seen this? Sometimes you'll hear it be as low as $9.60, and other times you'll hear it's $780 worth of natural chemicals to compose the human body. But here's what I'm fascinated by. And being a preacher, I'm always looking for a hook. I'm not going to lie to you. But what I'm fascinated by is every single body is composed of the same chemicals. They, they don't say that women have these chemicals and men have these, or African Americans have these and Italians have these. It's none of that. Every single human being is composed primarily the basic minerals to build. Now there are some, some differentiations, but not very much. What are we supposed to learn from that? As different as you are from every single person, your biology is roughly the same as every single person in this room. How many of you have done something like 23andMe? It, 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 are any of you interested in that or you just don't care? How many of you answer questions when asked? Can we start there? <laughs> So like three of us have tried, well, I bought the packet, but I've been making fun of myself ever since. I've had this packet for two months, but the requirement, this is truth, the requirement is you have to be 30 minutes without eating or drinking anything to spit into the, I haven't found a 30 minute window that I'm not asleep where I can actually spit in this cup and find my DNA. But I think it's funny if 23andMe has played out, and I just read a book called Adam and the Genome that talks about the, the whole system, it's fascinating, I'm not a doctor, but holy smoke, that book is fascinating about what they found in the, the, the genome of the human body and how it's different in some places, but it's substantively the same. It's just fascinating, and I know you don't care, but my point being, as different as we are in attitudes and everything else, do you hear what Paul's saying? It's not just a metaphor. He's actually identifying that we're all composed of the same concept, a physical and spiritual entity, and all of that serves together in a powerful way. When we're divided, remember what's the first criticism that God had of creation? Do you remember? Yeah, when he saw Adam alone, what did he say? It's not good. Everything else was good. But community, he's making a statement there. This need to be members of one another, to use this, the concept of this physiology to be joined together. Now, we go from these realities that we need each other and how that operates to the next one another, which is be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. For some of us in the room, the bell just went off. Ding! That might be one I know is not my strength. Okay, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In Romans 12, he says, be devoted to one another in love. Now this is a metaphor. We've had the marriage metaphor... Now Paul introduces the family metaphor. And he uses brother and sister quite commonly. He is extrapolating on something very important in the culture of Paul's day. Was family was your birthright, family was your heritage, family was your protection, family was your social security payment, family was your retirement fund. Family covered everything. The government didn't take care of them, families did. And the family name and the family title. So when Paul says, we are family in Jesus, that's just not cute metaphor. He's actually telling us something. And then he says, we need to be affectionate. We need to be uh, devoted. So my father emails me after two weeks ago and he goes, hey, you didn't finish that story between you and Scott where he hit you with the rock. And I said, what did I leave out? And he said, it was your fault. 
And I was like, I don't remember it that way. And he goes, you wouldn't. And that's all he said. And I was like, wow, you are my father. And I said, tell me the story again. He goes, you were mouthing your brother. He said, I finally beat him in a basketball game. And I wouldn't play him the second game. You know, man law says, if little brother beats the big brother, there's got to be a rematch. Well, I knew he'd whip me the second time, so I must have just walked in the house mouthing the whole time. Now, I know that'll stun you. But I was jawing him the whole time. And my dad says, Scott pushed me into the screen door, called me a baby and pushed me in the screen door. And she said, her dad said, when he went back out in the parking lot, I spit at him. And he hit me in the head with a rock. Now you know the rest of the story. My dad will leave me alone, okay? So I'm not the angel. I, I don't think I presented myself the angel, but that was the truth. And the reason I bring that up here is I, my dad said, tell me what you're teaching. And I was walking through the notes with him, and he said, uh, in honor giving preference to one another. And this is what my dad said to me, and I love this moment. He said, the hardest part for him as a dad is when we used to be brothers and put our arms around each other, and he said, like, we'd watch the show, and he would look over, and the three of us boys would be laying on top of each other, just watching it, just leaning on each other. He said, then something happened where culture told the three of us that you don't do that. My dad said he saw these three boys who we couldn't, like we'd sleep in each other's rooms, we'd put up a tent, and all three of us would sleep in that tent, and then he said something happened where one of us, and he always loves it, he says, one of us got cool. And he said, no, I'm not sleeping in your bed. That's stupid. And unfortunately, we'd have a word we'd use for that that was ridiculous. And the next thing you know, there was no affection. It was only fighting and bickering and positioning and that stupid man stuff. My dad said one of the greatest joys, and he told this story, was he said, uh, when I went to college, my dad was one of these guys. I knew my dad loved me, but my dad was always like, Mark, when someone introduces them, you look them in the eyes, you shake their hand firmly, and you tell them your name. And I was like, okay, that's how I was raised. So if someone, he introduced me to a work, I'd say, you know, hello, Mr. Smith, and I'd shake his hand and say, my name's Mark Christian. And he said, nice to meet you, Mark. And that's how we get And I remember one time I went to college, and I was leaving the house, and I gave my mom a hug and a kiss, and I turned around, and my dad extended his hand and shook my hand. And something changed in that moment. I didn't like it, but I didn't know what to do. And I think he was acknowledging me as a man. And so he just shook my hand and set me out the door. And I remember, that was weird. And I went home, and that's what it became. And then something switched. And my dad tells this story now. My dad says, then one time I came home and he shook my hand and I just grabbed his hand and pulled him in and I gave him a big hug. And my dad said, I missed this. I'm like, well, you started it, you knucklehead. (laughs) Just (laughs) hugged me in college. I thought there was this love. But he said, he realized at that moment, my mom talked and said, all of us boys went to that. But the good news is we've all gone back to an embrace. Like when I see my brothers now, I hug them. But I don't know who created that rule. Why do I tell you my little story? Because in the church, I'm scared to death how formal we've become. I'm scared to death when I come in first hour and I see a young lady sitting up about three rows, four rows to the side, all by herself. And I wonder what her story is. Is she single? Is she divorced? Is she, does her husband not come to church with her? Does she drag three kids to church? I mean, she knows she's not doing that if she's here at eight. Right? I mean, that's the truth. Nobody can do that. We don't expect anyone with children to be here at eight unless you're on the way somewhere else. But I look at her sitting by herself, and I just don't feel guilty about this, but if it, gets, if it convicts you, do something about it. When I stand on that stage, I look over and I go, why didn't anybody go in and sit with her? Because she doesn't need to sit by herself. We need to squeeze this room together and go back toward affection. But I think we're all awkward, right? Because it... It kind of grows up in this environment where, yeah, I can't hug my big brother Steve because people think I'm stupid or he'll make fun of me and I'll feel insecure. Someone's got to break through that glass. And there should never be an environment where people are allowed to sit alone. Now, you know what's going to happen. One of you is going to be bold on Sunday 
and go sit next to someone, they're going to go, leave me alone. And then I'm going to be like, I hate Mark. But the truth is, isn't it worth taking the risk to show kindly affection in a proper, appropriate place? It just is. And so I don't sit here judging our church, but when I look out in the room, I'm like, that could be fixed. And I know my heart is probably, this will be one that I say, I'm uncomfortable with this sometimes. I don't know how to administrate this safely. And so my personality is if I don't know what to do, I normally don't do anything. My wife will tell you it's a flaw. If I can't figure it out, I stall. But I'm saying to some of us, notice what he says here, honor one another. Do what you can do to make people feel comfortable. Touch is a big issue right now, I get it. But in the church, we've got to do better at this. Safe, appropriate, but loving affection is what Paul's talking about. That's what he means about being devoted to. Let nothing be done with selfish ambition, Philippians 2, or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. I always want to preach that text when we stand up on a Sunday morning and say, hey, we're running out of space and people are coming in late and could you move to the middle? Do you know what the response rate to that request is on a normal Sunday? Less than 1%. There are people like, nope, been my chair since Jesus left. I ain't moving. And I'm like, let's turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. <laughs> Slide your butt over. Of course, nobody wants to be in the center of a 12-seat row if you have to use the restroom. I get it. Or what my favorite is, is when they bring in a child who's two or three, and you think I'm about to say, they ought to go to the nursery. Not a chance. It took my wife four weeks of attending church here, and I was the preacher before she put our four-year-old in the children's area. And I didn't say a word, because I'm like, Mama Bear is hugging her cub right now. I'm not stupid enough to reach into there. (laughs) And if anybody would have walked up, well, there's a room for him. There's a room for you, too. It's the Be Quiet room. Now get over there. (laughs) But all of a sudden, you have this moment where I'm like, when I see us move a mom with a baby and put her in one of these center rows in the middle of a crowd of people, do you know which kid's going to go off in that service? That kid. And what's the worst feeling in the world for a mom? It's not that she's interrupting the sermon. When a mom can't get their child to calm down, they think it's 25 minutes. I have more moms come to me, I'm so sorry my kid was so loud. I'm like, I didn't hear your child at all. Absolutely not. And other times I'm like, oh, bless her. <laughs> Because that child is either looking for a spanking or it just lost its mind, one of the two. But I'm like, you know, we ought to have sections. I think the end seats ought to be for those people who can't navigate well and for people with kids. I'm seeing your head shaking, so if, you're a, if you sit on the cap, I'll be watching. Okay, no, I won't. All right. Be like-minded toward or unified with one another. I could really have some fun with this, but my humor's gotten me in trouble recently. I want to be careful. Be like-minded or unified with one another. What did we put on the last one? The last one is, oh, yeah, yeah, if I would have read it. In honor, yeah, we didn't even cover that one, sorry. In honor, giving preference to one another. That's where I went off on my stories about seating. Giving preference to one another. Okay? Are we caught up? Apologies, I got happy. The next one is to be like-minded or unified with one another. What's the best way to be unified? I want you to think about this. What is the best way for us to find unity? We are in a country that's not unified, are we? We're living in a country right now that's not unified on many, many things. I think probably the only thing this entire country is unified on it, that This Is Us is an amazing television program. Everything else is up for debate. So how do you stay unified? Think about your marriage. 
Think about your relationship with your children. Think about your best friends. How do you stay unified on things? Okay, you learn to f- you be forgiving. Okay, you put them before yourself. Find common ground. What do we mean? So, yeah. How about we keep the main thing the main thing? Okay. I, I remember as a kid, one television station, or one, one station, three stations, one television. And there was just no question who controlled that TV. Mom. And, if my, and mom didn't watch much, many shows. She had her show. It was Love is a Many Splendored Thing. It was on sometime in middle afternoon. I remember a little kid before I went to school watching her cry, watching TV, and I would rub her arm. I'm sorry. And she's like, no, it's just my show. You know, and she'd be ironing, watching her show. And I always remember that as a young kid going, she's crying. I never cried during Sesame Street or Captain Kangaroo. <laughs> Why are you watching this? Anyway, I still don't know. And uh, we would go through that. But when mom came in and she wanted to watch a television show, she wanted to watch the Waltons as a kid. And we'd be watching a football game. And Walton started in the fourth quarter. My dad would give us a look like, zip it. And mom would change the channel and watch her thing. And when she left, dad took control. When dad wasn't there, it went in pecking order. Oldest son, second son, me. And uh, one of the coolest moments my dad ever had in his entire life was he walked in on a beautiful Sunday afternoon. And we were watching Bugs Bunny. And it was summer. And he came home from work. And the look of disdain on that man's face when he saw his three children sitting inside on a beautiful sunny day... My dad unplugged the television, took out his pocket knife, cut off the end of the power cord, stuck it in his pocket, and then went about his day. And all three of us were in the family room going, we're going to go outside. So we went outside and played. And then two weeks later, we went in the television worked. And we're all looking around and... And we found out my mom won. She's like, okay, you can teach them a lesson, but I'm missing my show. And so he put the plug back together with tape. I'm sure it wasn't legal. I know how our house burned down, but that was my father. And he just did that, and he laughs about it today. He goes, I didn't do that. And we're all like, we, you liar. We saw you. At the end of the day, my dad would always have this rule in our house. When we started arguing about something like our favorite baseball team or something, my dad would be like, stop. This isn't worth it. My grandfather used to, I thought it was original with my grandpa, but he used to say to me all the time, because I'm a campaigner, is that a hill you want to die on? Like I'd be arguing with my mom, his daughter, and he'd look at me. Is that a hill you want to die on? No, sir. Then stop. You're going to get yourself in trouble. He was protecting me. I wonder if unity shouldn't be focused on what Paul said when he said, one Lord, one faith, one hope, one baptism, one Father, above all, in all, and through all. He's telling us, listen, that's the only thing that matters is us loving each other in Jesus and serving each other in Jesus. And yeah, we may not like the same music or we may not like the same style or I don't like coming in here when I get frostbite because it's four degrees and first hour. And and there's a bunch of things I could pick on about this church and I work here. But if we focus on what we're doing, and what I love about this church, and I'll tell you, not many churches are like this and I have nothing to do with it, so I thank you. This is not a contentious church where people are arguing. I've had people come up to me and say, yeah, I don't dig the music or it's too loud or "I, I don't need the smoke. But they stay and they worship Jesus anyway. And I'm grateful for that because there are some churches who aren't like this, right? Who are like, no, I either get my way or you're wrong. The key to this, being like-minded, listen to what he says in Romans 15. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This comment is made to me, and I share it with you because you're responsible for it. 
When I ask people, when I meet them for the first time, which is embarrassing here because I'll introduce myself, I'll meet someone in the hallway, they'll ask to pray or introduce themselves, and I'll say, well, you know, hi, and, and I'll say, how long have you been coming here? <laughs> this happened Sunday. The guy met me in the hallway, and he goes, ah, I don't know, 13 years? I said, <laughs> 13 years, and this is the first conversation you and I have had, and he goes, it's a big church. <laughs> Thank you. Very gracious. But we're having a conversation, and I, I simply say to him, like, so what do, you, what do you think? Tell me what your experience is. Do you feel welcome? Do you feel like this is a place for you? And I had a lady who had been here three weeks. And she turns around and she goes, I expected to walk in this place and have every seat full and nobody interested me. She said, I didn't get the first two songs this morning because I was meeting people in the hallway who were introducing me. She goes, this one couple bought me a coffee. So they said, and they bought my kids chocolate chip cookies. She had tears in her eyes telling me the story. She goes, I just felt like I could be here. Thank you. Because that's not the common experience of people looking for a relationship with the church. And I appreciate that. That is what we're talking about here. Seeking what's best for others before we ever fight what's for best for ourselves. So unity, I learned from my folks. Unity is Heather and I, there are some things we disagree on. There are certain things we, dis- we just don't talk about it. Because it doesn't matter. I'm right and she's wrong. And we haven't figured that out yet. So we move on. All right. I'm just sometimes just find out if you're listening. All right, next one. Accept and receive one another. This builds off the previous ones. Accept one another just then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. How do you accept or receive another person? You accept who they are and you what they are. Yeah. You take them as they are and you don't have to leave them as they are. So we were having a conversation. Kelly and I were involved in a conversation this afternoon where John 8 was brought up beautifully. John 8, Jesus did not lecture the woman caught in adultery, did he? He met her need, realizing that his love would change her posture. If you look, Jesus never called out what a person did. He always calls out who they are. So how do we treat people? There are people in this church who are in a relationship or living out in a certain way right now that the majority of people in this room would go, that's not right. Are they welcome here, even if they're not right? If we're going to administer the gospel of Jesus Christ, I always love what C.S. Lewis said, God will accept us as we are, but not let us stay there. That's a paraphrase of his teaching. That goes all the way back to where he started, right? With grace and truth. If you simply say, this is God's best for you, and this is God's heart for you, then accepting and receiving one another. But in a country so divided by every issue, this is going to take a greater strength. This is where the Holy Spirit's going to have to work on me sometimes to simply go, yeah, but, yeah, but. So what's fun here, and this I didn't get this in Michigan, What's fun here is, let's just say, I have people coming up, and they're not, it's not a homosexual, heterosexual issue I'm alluding to. I have people in certain postures in life doing certain things who come up almost defiantly like, so I do this. Am I welcome here? And I smile at them and go, you're absolutely welcome here. If you tithe, everyone's welcome here. <laughs> they never laugh at that like you all just did. And I smile, I go, of course you're welcome here. However, if you think by being here, that when we talk about the truth, we're going to protect you from that. No. But we're going to love you while the truth comes out. It's harder to actually do than it is to say what I just said. But what is the sign of a mature group of people? 
You let people into community and show them what a loving, God-fearing community looks like and let the Holy Spirit do the work. So people don't have to cross the line. And I'm not suggesting for anybody, especially those of you who aren't here tonight, who don't know me and might be listening, because I get emails from people who are from other churches listening to this, I'm not suggesting that there's no right or wrong line. But let's let God's Word decide that line and let's welcome all people to see it for themselves. That's a sign of growing beyond our own opinions. That allows us to focus on the truth of the gospel without diluting the gospel to make people feel comfortable. Although everyone should feel comfortable being invited to see who Jesus is. Uh, Next one, admonish one another. What's a good word for admonish that we might use today? Because I don't know anybody who uses that outside of the church. Encourage? What else? Coaches admonish. Chad, you admonish kids when you coach them? Or do you? You ever get up on a kid and tell him he's going to do it the right way and here's how to do it? Yeah. yeah. How many of you have teach music? Nobody in here teaches music? How many of you are school teachers? Do you admonish kids? Yes. How do you do it? Do you use a red pen when you grade a paper? <laughs> See how sweet she was? Not always. But a big red mark on a paper. Was that an admonishment? Absolutely. My eighth grade son took me today through the parent-teacher conference. He showed me his paper. A lot of red marks right there. He's a good student. He did great. There were some red marks in that paper, and he was handing me the paper, and I'm going... So tell me how you missed this. He goes, I wasn't listening in class. He's just so honest. He's like, yeah, I sit next to my best friend. I'm like, well, you need to move and uh, pay attention. Admonishment doesn't say you're not a super kid. Admonishment says you can do better than that. And that's not the proper answer. That behavior's not okay. Whereas I grew up hearing in our house all the time, we don't do that in this house. I'm like, yeah, we do. No, we're not going to do that in this house. But that, that would be the issue. So... Is it wrong to admonish? Is it unloving? Is it ungrace-filled? Is it lacking compassion? So Alex was about six years old, faster than the wind, and he was playful. And sometimes, you know how kids... Because I tease a lot with my boys. They didn't always understand when I was being serious and when I was being playful. And he would start to run from me. And I'd start to chase him and he'd run faster. He was getting faster. And I'm thinking, this isn't good. He needs to know. So what is it, a trigger word? What do I use? Well, I whistle. And I can whistle really loud. So I said to him, I said, Alex, when I whistle, you stop. I'm not playing. Okay, that's not, do you want to stop? When I whistle, I need you to stop instantly, turn around and find me or find your mom. It helped us one time when he got away from us at Disneyland. he, He thought he was walking with me. And he walked up next to another guy and he grabbed this guy's hand. And we were looking around for him, and all of a sudden I see my son walking away holding the hand of another guy, and I about lost my mind. And I whistled really loud, and he turned around, and, and he saw it wasn't him, and he let go, and the guy smiled like the guy was going to take him to lost and found because he's like, I didn't want to scare him. And he came back and apologized, like, oh, you didn't do anything wrong, I'm just glad I saw you. Well, turned around, well, Alex was embarrassed, and I'm thinking he's going to run. This is like a Kodak commercial from the old days. He's going to run, jump in my arms, we're going to have this big embrace. He walked up and punched me right in the stomach. <laughs> He was so embarrassed he didn't know what to do. He's like, wham! I'm like, whoa, whoa! Go back with that guy, you know? 
Well, anyway, I taught him this. Now, the neighbors used to make fun of us. Heather always makes fun of me because our neighbors in Michigan said, he's not a dog. You whistle and he comes running. I'm like, you're jealous. We were in a... I'm trying to think it was either Detroit or Chicago. And we were on the street and he was chasing a bag that blew away out of his hand, like a popcorn bag. He was chasing it down the street. He was heading toward a corner. And instantly, my radar went off. And I said, we, I said, Gus, that's our nickname for him. Gus, Gus, and he couldn't hear me. And he was reaching right toward the corner. He was so intent on bringing this thing back, he was heading right toward an intersection. I whistled as loud as I could. And he stopped. And as he stopped, he put his foot out like that. And a truck went by and ticked the front of his foot and spun him down on the ground. And I'm like, I couldn't breathe. And I look at Heather, and she's melted into a puddle on the sidewalk. She's gone. And I'm like, turn around, and she gets in the car, and she goes, oh my gosh, we couldn't talk about it for about 20 minutes. Alex is shaking, Heather's shaking, and I'm like, I'm a good dad. (laughs) No, I wasn't. I was like, we almost lost our child over a stupid Garrett's popcorn bag. And we get in the car and everything, and and Heather's like, oh my goodness. And she goes, are you going to use that on Sunday? I go, not yet. (laughs) <laughs> not yet but I said I am going to go back and tell Margaret it saved his life because now my boys both of them will stop at that and I'm thinking for that moment that one moment that we taught him trust us don't do that he was messing I saw him our lawnmower clogged up and he wanted to be a big boy at 10 some of you know exactly where I'm going it was wet grass the funnel got all clogged up with grass while it was running uh huh started to reach his hand down there Heather's on the porch, and I hear her yell to me in the garage, Whistle! <laughs> All of a sudden, he pulls his hand back, and I'm like, Oh, you knucklehead. And so I went and bought a mower that shuts off when you let go of the handle. And it's just these moments. Am I the hero of these stories? Of course. But the point is, you get where I'm going? Admonishment saves people pain. And twice in his life, I was able to say, You don't do that. And I didn't care a lick about his feelings. I cared about his what? His safety, his soul, his life, his health. And if you live in a world where no one can tell you you're wrong, you're wrong. If no one can say there's a better way to do that, or that's not the best way. I know I struggle with this. I'm a dude. I got pride. And when someone challenges me, it's, it's tough. But admonishment, this is when I think for some of you, you're like, I don't admonish anyone. Yes, you do. You just don't realize that's what you're doing because your love is speaking. So if you care about a person's soul, you may simply say, hey, listen, that habit you've got, It's not good for you. You can't handle it. There are some people who just can't handle alcohol. There are people who can't have a drink. They have to have drinks. There are people who can't handle prescription medicine, and they're not honest about it. There are people who can't handle cheeseburgers. I think it's funny that we can go to dinner with Christians. I'm going to meddle here for a little bit. We can go to dinner with Christians. They order a glass of wine. Everyone's like, oh, my God. But they'll drink six Diet Cokes before the meal served, and no one says, dude... Seriously. Nothing wrong with that, but that's showing a lack of what? Self-control. Admonishment isn't being the moral police. Admonishment is caring enough about a person to say, stop that. (laughs) My my dad, I'm quoting my dad so much. But he would say to me all the time, keep doing that, you're going to have no friends. (laughs) That was great admonishment for me, because it was A, funny, and B, I'm like, oh, you're probably right. But he said, keep doing that, you're going to have no friends. And he'd just walk away, I'm like... Right to the point, my dad. Okay, next one. Greet one another with sincerity. And I changed this one because of the world we live in. I don't think I ruined it, 
But in Romans 16.16, 16, it says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. A holy kiss means something different in that culture than today. I would be in jail if I greeted all of you on Sunday morning <laughs> with a kiss. <laughs> um, but what did a kiss mean? Why did Judas kiss Jesus? Isn't it interesting that Paul would use imagery that the early church probably had to cringe over? When Judas kissed Jesus, what was he... He wasn't... Just take it away. He, he was, yes, acknowledging who Jesus was to the Roman soldiers. But what did the kiss mean? An intimate relationship. A friendship. Today, a hug would be the equivalent. But a kiss on the cheek showed intimacy. I've still got a friend in Mount Pleasant. Every time I greet him, he's Italian. Like, overblown Italian. Like, mafia. If he would be in it if they invited him. And every time I see John, grabs me by the face, kisses me on both cheeks, and gives me this. It's almost abusive. I mean, I am tore up when he's done. He's always got whiskers, so he's tearing my face up. But he pulls me in, and he hugs me, and he's real rough, but he sets me aside, and I love that guy. And I, that's probably the only person in the world that I actually look forward to when I see him. Like, he's going to kiss me on both cheeks. And Braden's like, Dad, what do I do? He's John. He loves you. And B's like, yeah, I love John. It's his natural affection. That is who he is as a person. But there's something between John and I that for the rest of my life I'll trust. I know that guy would take a bullet for me. I know he is my brother. And in that, in a church this large, you can't have everyone doing this be a weird place. <laughs> you know, we get called a cult to start with. We'd be worse if that was happening. But you all have people in your world, right? That I see exchanges in the hallway that are affectionate and close and loving. How do these... Here's the one question I have for you, and then I want you to do your analysis. How do these help you go into spiritual maturity? I gave you a bunch of imperatives. I told you, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, try this, experience this. How does this reveal to us maturity? How do the one another's help us get over ourselves? Yeah. Every single one of them requires you to place yourself second. Every single one of them makes your brother or sister more important than you. To the point of sometimes being uncomfortable because the truth is hard. Sometimes saying to a person, that behavior doesn't serve you well. Or Mark, you're not going to have any friends if you keep doing that. Whether it's playful or serious, if it's done with grace and love, if it's done in relationship, it allows every single person to be better at the conclusion. There's not one of these that hinders a single person, the giver and the receiver, from growing. And I want you to test that. You don't have to believe me on that. But my study says there's not a single one of these that's not good. So what I'd like you to do is just spend a moment. I'm going to ask for just a sampling of it. I'd like you to uh, give you about three minutes to do it. I'd like you to look at the list. I'd like you to put a star or circle, whatever you do to your notes, of two or three that you look and say, I think these come more naturally to me. And then I'd like you to highlight however you want to, one or two, that you particularly are like, this is a challenge for me. This is, this is out of my comfort zone. I'm not saying I won't. I just don't. It's going to take some work. going to take some efforting. Let's take about two minutes to look at that answer. Then I'm going to ask you at your table to have, if you're comfortable, share your reaction to those questions. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.